You may open your Bibles to Isaiah 24. Isaiah chapter 24. Sometimes a pastor fills the role of a cheerleader, but that's only part of his job. And we did that Wednesday night from Hebrews chapter 1, and it's 14 verses about the Lord Jesus Christ. Other times, it's to read in the book and the law of God distinctly and to give the sense, and some of the passages will not be all that cheery. And Isaiah 24 is not all that cheery, but it points us to a cheerful chapter that follows it. And so we have both needs, and there's a time to examine ourselves. Isaiah was a prophet under Hezekiah, and things were just pretty good in Jerusalem in comparison to the previous reign of Ahaz. But Isaiah 24 is something God put on Isaiah's heart to lay on the nation, and it wasn't cheerleading. And neither was Matthew 21. And neither was Matthew 22. And neither was Malachi chapter 1. And now that I think about it, I can hardly think of any chapters that are real cheerleading. Because that is not the issue that we have. We have to examine ourselves and put off the flesh and mortify the deeds of the flesh in order to follow Christ more perfectly. And so the emphasis is on duty and the emphasis is on self-examination and the emphasis is on changing And the emphasis is on doing things better and differently than we ordinarily do them. Because we ordinarily default to our category of carnality. And self-righteous people identify their level of carnality as godliness. And so we come before the Word of God and its mirror, and we examine ourselves and we find the blemishes there of being self-righteous, and not measuring up to the level of intensity, fervency, celebratory praise, devoted service, forgiving, overlooking, loving, beneficence toward others, and all the other measures of a real Christian. But right now in front of us is Isaiah 24, and we will cover it, and it's 23 verses, because it is in the Word of God, and it's profitable for us to consider how severe the Lord can be with his church. And this is for his church in Isaiah 24. I hope that you've read it in anticipation and preparation for today. In these 23 verses, God would judge Judah by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, leaving a remnant of Jews there and scattered abroad, and then deliver Judah and Jerusalem and restore greater worship than had ever been there before through Messiah, his son. Chapters 13 through 23, 11 chapters that we've covered, were rather unified in their message. Chapter 13 through 23, these 11 chapters that we've just covered, describe God's judgment on various nations that were neighbors of Israel and Judah. But now we enter a new section, slightly. There's still judgment here. And we will not get rid of judgment until chapter 35, for the most part. So that's why I've said from 13 to 34 is a lot of judgment. And I'm breaking that into smaller pieces now for you to possibly and hopefully see it. But these 23 verses may be divided this way. The first three, and I have sent this to you, But not everyone has looked at that little outline in print that I sent you. Verses 1 through 3, Judah 
is destroyed and taken captive. And we all know that from knowing Bible history just a little tiny bit, because it's one of the great events of the Old Testament, and that is the people of God taken captive by the Babylonians and kept there in Babylon for 70 years and then restored by Cyrus the Persian. Verses 4 through 6 are the sins against the laws and covenant of God by those people, the Jews. Verses 7 through 12, they are cursed to desolation for their sins against God. Verses 13 through 15, a remnant would be saved and delivered, and they would praise the Lord. Verses 16 through 20, yet the judgment would be sure. And verses 21 through 23, there would be a glorious return after judgment, pointing to the illustrious, glorious days of Messiah. We choose to understand chapters 24 through 27, the next four chapters that we have to cover as a group, possibly one prophecy, because 25 is the praise for the deliverance of the judgment of 24, and so is 26, and 27 is the resulting fruitfulness of the kingdom of God in the world. So 24 is judgment, 25 is deliverance, 26 is praise, 27 is fruitfulness. And when you get to 28, totally different. As soon as you open the first verse of Isaiah 28, you know it's different than the four chapters you've just been reading. Its object is Ephraim, which isn't even Judah, so it's a different nation under consideration. And Isaiah 28 is very different in its language and the subject matter that it deals with. And 29 is very different. And so 23 was different because it was tired. So here we have this section that if you just read the first verse, you would think it's talking to Alabama. But since it's not talking to Alabama, as I'll prove in just a moment, it's speaking to Judah and Jerusalem. That's because those that come into the book of Isaiah and every other place in the Bible that want to take it literally end up in trouble because it says the earth in verse 1 of 24, and so they get scared that it must be the whole globe, and that includes Alabama, and Alaska, and Madagascar, and all the other places in the world that God didn't care about when he wrote the book of Isaiah. Because when God wrote about earth, and about world, and about land, he really only cared about the earth, world, and land of his people. And that's why it is so limited in the geographical scope in the Bible's use of those words. Because it was only the nations right around Israel that God even cared about that are even mentioned in the Bible, other than having some founding fathers that we read about in the chapters around the Tower of Babel and the Flood. But these four chapters, we can see, 23 is so different, 28 is so different, these four are quite similar, and they're all pointing toward praise in Zion by the recovery of of a remnant of Jews, and then the Lord's blessing upon them with Messiah. Now, the next thing we need to do before we start, so that I can just move through these verses quickly, is seeing those four chapters together is a minor point. The major point is to learn that this is God's judgment of Judah and Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. How do we come to that conclusion 
from the use of such universal terms like earth and land and world by reading these four chapters. By reading these four chapters, you will see so many references to the fact that it is much more than some general vague prophecy of who knows when and who knows what that's going to fall on the earth and who knows what that remnant is that's going to come back and who knows what everlasting covenant the earth broke because they never had one made with them. But So it's hard to tell what you're talking about unless we make it specific to meet the terms of the context. We always let context be our master when we study the Word of God. Now, I have 17 points to make from chapters 24 through 27 to show you that it's Judah and Jerusalem being ravaged by Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian, but I'm only going to share a few of them with you for the sake of time because 17 is unnecessary. Let's go to verse 5 right here in Isaiah 24. The earth, whatever that earth stands for, is that Jewish earth? Is that Babylonian earth? Is that Roman earth? Is that the Roman world? Is that the North American continent? Is that the Eastern or Western hemisphere? What part of the earth is it? Is it all the earth? Is it the North Pole and the South Pole? Is it the Amazon rainforest? What is this earth? Well, we're going to, I've already told you what it is. It's Judah and Jerusalem of the Jews. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. So this earth is inhabited because there's a defilement that has taken place because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. What people on earth had an everlasting covenant made with them? What people on earth had a collective ordinance made with them? What people on earth had laws to break? that would bring about what the next verses tell us, a curse. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, in verse 6. Now, the rest of the world hadn't changed one bit the way it had lived all the, day, all the days since Cain. They were murderers, and they had not kept laws. They had driven 75 in a 55-mile zone as early as Cain. They hadn't changed. There wasn't an everlasting covenant made with them. There wasn't an ordinance for them to keep that they had violated and so that now a curse was falling on the earth. But there was a people that had an everlasting covenant and laws to keep and an ordinance to keep who had broken it and that would bring forth a promised curse, that curse being promised in Deuteronomy 28, that curse being promised in Leviticus 26. And that's the Jews. They had an everlasting covenant. What was the everlasting covenant? I will give this land... Abraham, look north, south, east, and west. I will give this land to you and to your seed forever. And now they're being ripped out of it. How can that happen? Because they broke the everlasting covenant. Because the covenant of the land was conditional. C.I. Schofield wants it to be unconditional. And if I was a Jew, I'd want it to be unconditional as well. But I'm not. I'm a Gentile. So it's very conditional. Because the Bible made that covenant of the land conditioned upon their obedience. If you'll obey, oh, Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14, it doesn't get any better than that in the Bible. If you'll obey, I'll do all this stuff for you. Then at verse 15, if you disobey, I'm going to do all this stuff towards you. And it's very different. I will rip you out of your land. 
and it runs on that way for 54 verses all the way to verse 68, which describes them being sold into slavery in Egypt, which is what Caesar Titus did to them after the destruction of Jerusalem. And so if they would obey, they could have the land forever and it would be incredibly prosperous. If they did not obey, he would rip them out of the land and chase them through the world. So they broke the everlasting... Anyway, all, the point is, when you're going to study a chapter in a book like Isaiah, you have to determine its context so that you know who and whom, when and why and where, or you are lost. And these become sound bites, and it's like we're reading the Koran in Arabic. You have to make a choice based on context right. of the who and the whom and the what and the why, where and when, of a particular chapter, and I'm telling you, it's Babylon coming with Nebuchadnezzar, taking them captive, and there's, because there's, there's going to be, they're going to be in prison, it says so, they're going to be there for many days, it says so, they're going to be visited again, and they're going to come out of prison, and then there's going to be a great revival of the Jews through Messiah, and it says all that, and so it doesn't take very much to figure this out. Look at verses 13 and through 15 of chapter 24. Remember, I have 17, we've covered one. Verse 13, When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree. When the nation is overrun and made desolate, there, there will be a little bit of gleaning left. There will be a few olive berries on a tree, and there will be a few grapes in the vineyard that weren't picked when the vintage was pulled. They shall lift up their voice, they shall sing for the majesty of the Lord, they shall cry aloud from the seas. They're going to praise the Lord. Will what people, when there was only a remnant of them left, praise the Lord? The Jewish remnant praised the Lord. We know of no other remnant that praised the Lord. The gospel hadn't yet been opened to the people of the rest of the world like it had been to the Jews. Come over to chapter 25. Chapter 25, and look at verse 6. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things. When in Mount Zion, first, first of all, notice, in this mountain. This is a demonstrative adjective telling you that it's not that mountain. And it's not your mountain. And it's not Paris Mountain. This mountain. In this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things. When did the Lord God Almighty open up his kingdom to Gentiles in Mount Zion? under Messiah. This is about the Jews. This is about Judah. This is about Jerusalem. This is about Mount Zion that is there and Mount Zion which is above. We can see it from that particular place. And we could go on and look at the other two chapters and see it as well. Similitudes. Similitudes are where a prophet chooses words that are like what he's talking about but are not expressly what he's talking about. They are word pictures. They are similes I am as hungry as a lion by my use of that word as I have created a simile and so there are many of these similes throughout the book of Isaiah and other prophets including here now you say I'm sort of convinced I'm sort of convinced that Isaiah and the Holy Spirit would use the words earth world and land 
for just a very tiny part of the earth, world, and land. Okay? You're partly convinced? Let's go back to Isaiah 13. When we were there, I reminded you and told you and exhorted you and encouraged you to learn it. Because Isaiah 13 is one of the better chapters in Isaiah. There's others. 34 is one of them. That shows us how the prophet uses words because within the chapter is the specific who, when, where, what, and why in the chapter. It's right there for you so that you don't have to work as hard. And see, here we are in Isaiah 13. And verse 17 tells us, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Verse 19 tells us, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So it tells us, this is the overthrow of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians under Darius the Great and Cyrus the Great. So we're told that. Isaiah 13 is about that particular event in history. When did it occur? 457 B.C. Does the whole world know about that event? Absolutely. The whole world knows about that event. It's an important event in the Bible. But then, when we look into Isaiah 13, look at verse 13 of Isaiah 13. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place. Where did the globe go? Where did planet earth go when Darius approached Babylon with his media armies? It didn't go anywhere. This is figurative language of the prophets. Look at verse 10. For the stars of heaven and the constellation thereof shall not give their light. The stars are going to go dark. Who relit them and when? This is figurative language of the overthrow of the great city of Babylon. Look at verse 5. They come from a far country, that's the Medes, from the end of heaven. How many miles to the end of heaven, Daddy? Will we get to stop at a rest area before we get to the end of heaven? I'm, I'm making fun of a literal approach right. to prophetic language. Amen. They come from a far country from the end of heaven. Even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. The whole land of North America? Or the whole land of India? The whole land of Israel? The whole land of Egypt? Or a little tiny wee spot that you can't even find on a globe called the city of Babylon. But it's the whole land because that's the prophetic language. And we're told what Isaiah 13 is about. So there we have some uses of earth and heaven. Look at verse 5. I've already shown you the whole land. Look at verse 9. The day of the Lord cometh cruel both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate land does that mean dirt does that mean dirt that is above the water or dirt that is below the water I guess we just call dirt that is above the water land is this all land okay I've got to do this because I want to tell you something if you don't go through this process you will not know what chapters 24 through 27 are talking about but if you will go through the process, if you will learn as you read, and I trust God's arrangement of the chapters of Isaiah 
that as you read from chapter 1, you land on chapter 13 well before you get to chapter 24. And chapter 13 shows you that this is how I use language in the book of Isaiah. So that when you come to chapter 24 and you say, what's the land? What's the earth? What's the world? You're not thinking this big. You're thinking this big. And then you read the context. Sweet. It's Judah and Jerusalem. When were they taken captive, put in prison, released, returned, and the kingdom of God through Israel exploded under Messiah? When did that happen? Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian, the Chaldean, took them captive. Cyrus released them. They came back. There was no great revival for 400 years. That's why the Bible is so silent about it. But when John the Baptist and the Son of God burst on the scene, then things changed to fulfill what we have here. Amen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Right. With that done, oh, you just got a little tour in my office. And it is terrible. Every minister that doesn't think it's terrible hasn't done it yet. The fear of misdividing the Word of God right. and begging God to show you by context, by context, what He's talking about. Otherwise, I dare you to take these chapters on and figure out what is under consideration. Unless you pull them together and see the context and then go to Isaiah 13 and you see the precedent. See, I have context and I have precedent and I'm at peace. And I'm just not at peace. I'm fully persuaded. There isn't a doubt what this is about. You say, well, why would God use the, word, the, the big, wide, comprehensive, broad words like earth, land, and world? Because his nation is all that counted. Right. It is the earth, it. world, and land. Mm -hmm. Do you want to know another reason? I'm this is total speculation. I'll tell you what I'm speculating. Because the gospel that's going to pop up in the next chapter is going to use a new word. And so it's just slowly introducing us to something that this is going to result in a worldwide change. Right. The, the word that pops up in the next chapter is nations. Now when we get that plural nations, we have something else to deal with, don't we? Yeah. That's different than earth, land, and world. And we're going to get to that in the second service. It'll be celebratory in the second service. I know I don't sound very celebratory right now. But chapter 24 isn't very celebratory. Right. Okay, here we go. We're going to go. We're going to do it quickly. We're going to do it quickly. Lord, help us do it quickly. There's no reason not to do it quickly. Verses one through three: Judah destroyed and taken captive. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty, and maketh it waste, and turneth it upside down, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. When did your globe ever turn upside down so the North Pole became the South? I'm sorry that I'm running back to my point. When did the North Pole ever become the South Pole? Oh, it's a figure of speech? Thank you. Thank you. That's what we were looking for. Figures of speech. Behold, the Lord maketh the earth empty. Really? Whole earth? You say you're going back there for the third time. I know what I'm doing. If I don't get you fully convinced, you won't understand the chapter. Because I'm just going to roll through it. Roll through it. Because once context is settled, I don't like these words any more than you like to hear them. Once context is settled, 
I force the words to fit the context always. Mm -hmm. I never let words tell me my context. Mm -hmm. I never let a dictionary tell me what a word means. Mm -hmm. I let the context tell me what a word means. And I hope that you will follow that practice when you overhear me saying to someone, I beat my wife last night. I hope, you, I hope that you will let context overrule the dictionary. Though the dictionary does give me a lot of liberty on that particular word. Verse 2, And it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest. As with the servant, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the taker of usury, so with the giver of usury to him. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled, for the Lord hath spoken this word. Amen and amen for the first little section of chapter 24. Behold, this is something we should look at. The Lord was going to empty out Judah and Jerusalem. He would take away its people. He would scatter its inhabitants. And that's what it is describing here. The Lord maketh the earth, the Jewish earth, empty. Just like he overthrew the Babylonian earth by the Medes and the Persians in Isaiah 13. That's about the fourth time back there, and I don't want to go there again. He made it a wasteland. And we have read about that wasteland in chapters 7 and 8 as we make our way toward chapter 24. That God would make it a wasteland. Remember some of the, the verses about all the hedges are broken down and animals are trotting over everything? and there's no farms left, and there's no organized farms, and fences are gone, and the mess, because he's going to make it a wasteland and turneth it upside down, confusion everywhere, the breakdown of all ordinary society, and scattereth abroad the inhabitants thereof. Did the inhabitants of Judea flee away? Yes, they did. They fled in all directions. Some went to Egypt, and some ended up being captive in Babylon. Others went to the Isles of the Sea to get away from Nebuchadnezzar and his army. It was terrifying to have Nebuchadnezzar marching again against Jerusalem. Verse 2, what's the lesson? There's so many things that could be said here, but it's... I hope you know the Bible story that the inhabitants of Judea were taken captive and the ones that weren't taken captive were killed and the ones that weren't taken captive or killed fled. Some into Egypt and to other places. Verse 2 is the lesson that God's judgment doesn't care about class. There are six comparisons in this verse describing the opposite sides of six different kinds of relationships. There's no class in God's judgment. You know, when a nation has sinned, they get punished for it. And you don't, you're not delivered because of your class. You may be delivered because of your obedience, but you won't be delivered because of your class. And so verse 2 is just saying, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a master with servants or you're a servant under a master, you're all going down. As so, as so, as so, as so, all the way through it, because there's not going to be any difference made. There's no pity for the poor. There's no pity for the weak. There's no pity for the man that had to pay interest and the man that was unjustly charging interest because it was a rule of Israel that they couldn't charge their brethren interest. But it says here, as the man that charged interest, and as the man that so the man that paid interest, both were going to be judged. Because this was a time of God's judgment upon Judah. 
the land shall be utterly emptied and utterly spoiled. For the Lord hath spoken this word. He destroyed the place. He destroyed the farms. He destroyed the city. He destroyed the city walls. He destroyed the temple. He destroyed the houses. You've got to read 2 Kings 24 and some of the other historical chapters that said Nebuchadnezzar broke the wall down, got in that place, burned the temple to the ground, burned all the houses to the ground, and especially it wants you to know it burned the houses of the rich men to the ground. I know, I'm a little excited. So he made it utterly spoiled and utterly emptied. For the Lord hath spoken this word. Now listen, brethren, without my introduction, which I took too long on, but I've spent hours on it myself, for your safety and your benefit, what would those first three verses be talking about? You would have to guess. You would not know unless you read 24, 25, 26, and 27 and pull from them to see that this is Nebuchadnezzar coming against the Jews for their desolation. It's not, it's not Titus. Because Jesus Christ came before Titus, not after him. I mean, there's just all these different ways that you can narrow it down. Sennacherib didn't take any one prisoner from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was still standing. It wasn't all desolate when he left. There were 46 fenced cities that had been taken. He claims to have taken 200,000 prisoners, but there's still the city of Jerusalem there. The king was still there. We're going to find out that the king and the the priests are going to be put in prison as well as soon as we finish the chapter. So this is what it is. And may the Lord help us to understand it and appreciate it. May the Lord remind you, if you've read the prophets, how important of an event it was in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Remember, Isaiah is writing 100 years. I'm rounding off. A hundred years in front of Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. Ezekiel is in Babylon already because Ezekiel went in the first captivity with Daniel. So he's writing from Babylon. Jeremiah is writing from Jerusalem. They're contemporaries writing about Nebuchadnezzar and what he's doing to Jerusalem. One from a distance, one from right up close as an eyewitness. And so these three major prophets, and then some of the minor prophets, are about this transcendent event of God rejecting his people, of God cursing his people for their disobedience and throwing them out of their land. And Nebuchadnezzar taking them captive for 70 years, a very specific period of time of 70 years for the land to enjoy her Sabbaths. You wouldn't give me the seventh day? I will let the land rest for 70 years is how God reasoned through the prophets. And then, uh, the middle of Isaiah and all the chapters of the 40s are going to be about Cyrus the Persian releasing those Jews from Babylon as the servant of God, named by God 150 years before he was born. And this was a huge event. They came back, they rebuilt the city. There was only a few of them, 45,000 or so, rebuilt the city, rebuilt the temple. And it meandered on. I mean, it was pitiful so quickly. Have you ever read Malachi? You know, I referred to Malachi earlier. Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament, several hundred years in front of John the Baptist, and he just lists all the crimes of those regathered Jews. It's terrible. It's pitiful. It's pitiful. Haggai and Zechariah are the two prophets that were sent to stir up the builders, 
to build that temple and to build the city. And they list the sins. Ezra and Nehemiah tell us about the sins that were going on in Jerusalem while they're trying to build. Right. The marriages to the, fault, to the pagan women around them. The, the, the charging of usury. Uh, the selling of things on the Sabbath day. It, it's all there in Ezra and Nehemiah. It was pitiful, it was pitiful, it was pitiful. And we have a silent intertestamental period of 300 years. We're only told about it in prophecy in Daniel. And then very vaguely. And then John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ burst on the scene. And is there ever a revival among the remnant? And then the covering is taken off the Gentile nations and the kingdom of Jesus Christ explodes in the earth. Amen. That's what we want to get to. Right. Let's just finish this up, have a break, and come back for chapter 25. I've already spent so long. Brethren, it takes hours. I, I love. Listen, I love every minute of it as long as the Lord will show me the truth. Amen. To look at a passage like this and realize I've got to get a context for this. Nope. Nope, sorry, John Gill. This is not uh, the, the nations of Europe marching on Rome. Sorry, can't accept it. Just pitiful stuff. Because they're as confused as we would be if we didn't go back and read carefully. Doesn't just verse 2 tri- tip you off a little bit? Right. What does verse 2 say? As with the people, so with the priest. Do you think God really owned up to other men being priests anywhere in the world? I mean, yes, sometimes he might call them priests of the house of Dagon or something. But when he's talking through his prophet to his people and he compares people to priests, I mean, almost every verse in 24 has a little tip-off. You say, well, what about verse 1? What's the tip-off there? My tip-off is this. Does it fit? Does verse 1 fit? Absolutely it does. It fits Nebuchadnezzar ravaging the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. It fits. So here we go to, to section number 2, verses 4 through 6. Sins against the laws and covenant, and the breaking of the everlasting covenant. Verse 4, the earth mourneth Judah and Jerusalem. The earth mourneth and fadeth away. The world languisheth and fadeth away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. Is this few men left on the globe, or is this few men left in Judah? We... I know what is that the sixth or seventh time I've gone back to this point because it's absolutely crucial that you be asking yourselves questions like that it says that there's only a few men left in the earth when was this event I'd like to know about it when God wiped out millions yea even maybe billions when did it happen when there's only a few men left this is Nebuchadnezzar leaving only that remnant of a gleaning of the shaking of the olive tree and a few olive berries in the top uppermost branches. There's only a few left. And so we look at the ver- verse 4. The whole place of Judah is mourning and it's fading away. It's dissipating. It's disappearing. It's declining into nothingness, into wasteland, into desolation under the army of Nebuchadnezzar who came on several raids 
taking various men prisoners at various times, and then because he had dealt so fairly with them, and they so treacherously with him, he burned the place to the ground. He wouldn't have otherwise. Well, unless God told him to. But that was his excuse because they dealt so unfairly with him. Remember, Jeremiah had told them if you'll, if, to his own king, if you'll submit to Nebuchadnezzar, you'll save the city and the land. Right. And they rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And when you've got to put your army into the field from 900 miles away and march it across and into, into Judah, guess what you're going to do when you get there? You're not going to play checkers. You're not going to go to Applebee's. You're going to burn the place down, right. just like Titus did and Vespasian did to Judah and Jerusalem because of their rebellion. So the nation is mourning and it's fading away and there's many things that could be said and they are said in the outline. Verse 5, the earth also is defiled. How do you defile earth? How do you defile earth? That is because the people living on a particular piece of earth are so wicked that God is going to judge that place, that geographical location. Do you remember the Canaanites? The Canaanites were so incestuously wicked that God said, if I don't... If I don't kill them by you Israelites, the land will vomit them out. Right. Do you remember Cain and Abel? God came to Cain and said, your brother's, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That's right. You know, the ground hadn't changed in chemical composition. But the man on that ground, and that was a tiller of the ground, Cain... Blood was crying out to the Lord. And so there's a defilement here that's taken place on Judah. And the defilement is breaking the everlasting covenant, just like it is stated. And when you go read Deuteronomy 28, and I wish I could have put it in your reading for last night, but I had enough there for you. I wanted you to read the treachery of, Gedaliah, of Ishmael against Gedaliah in Jeremiah 40 and 41. But when you look at this fifth verse, the earth is defiled under the inhabitants. The Jews have defiled the promised land that God gave them, and there are three reasons given that overlap somewhat. They have transgressed the laws that Moses gave them from Mount Sinai. They've changed the ordinance, which we would look at that and say that's likely a collective noun for ordinances. If we want to make it a singular ordinance, it was probably the Sabbath day. Remember? Why 70 years in Babylon? And changed and broken the everlasting covenant and that was in general of obedience, you get the land. Disobedience, I throw you out of the land. Right. And so the earth is defiled. That means Judah is defiled. They have broken the terms for being able to stay in the promised land, and now they're going to get a different promise. They're going to be thrown out of it. Verse 6, Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth. You know, th there wasn't some monster that ate dirt. The curse of God threw the people out of the, out of the earth, out of the Judean earth, out of the Jerusalem area, out of the geography of the promised land, and they that dwell therein are desolate. The few that are left are desolate, and the inhabitants of the earth are burned. I've already mentioned Nebuchadnezzar burning the city to the, of Jerusalem down, and few men left. Should be easy. Third section, verses 7 through 12. The new wine mourneth. The vine languisheth. All the merry-hearted do sigh. The mirth of tabrets ceaseth. The noise of them that rejoice endeth. 
The joy of the harp ceaseth. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up that no man may come in. There is a crying for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In the city is left desolation. And the gate is smitten with destruction. Amen and amen. Amen. What city had its walls broken down, its houses rifled and burned, and the gate broken down, and there's no protection anywhere but desolation left in the city of Jerusalem? That is what it was like when Nebuchadnezzar had finished with the place. And so we look at verse 7. The new wine mourneth, the vine languisheth, all the merry-hearted do sigh. It is a figurative prophetic, symbolic, picture word, picture language of sadness, replacing happiness. The new wine mourneth. There's a vintage. There's a vintage sitting there. No one's drinking it. Because no one's in the mood for having a celebration or having a fine dinner. The merry-hearted do sigh. How does a merry-hearted man sigh? I want you to think. I hope you read the Bible very carefully and very slowly. Merry-hearted men do not sigh. They were once merry-hearted, but now they're sighing. Because there's been a change that's taken place. Just read this thing carefully, especially when we're in the book of Isaiah. When you're in Hebrews, you don't have to read very carefully. Because that is so logical and plain and straightforward by the Apostle Paul in most places. In most places. Verse 8. The mirth of tabrets ceaseth. That was a musical instrument comparable to a tambourine. A percussion instrument that could be held in the hand. It, the mirth of tabrets. You know, dancing. Celebrating in the streets. Enjoying God's blessing upon them. Had been the character of the nation of Judah. But no more. The noise of them that rejoice endeth. The joy of the harp ceaseth. All these expressions are saying the ordinary life of leisure and the life of prosperity and the life of joy and of God's favor is over. Verse 9, they shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink shall be bitter to them that drink it. There's no reason to have a glass of scotch before or after your meal. There's no joy in it because there's really no meal that you can eat in peace. The whole nation's being ravaged. In the prophetic eye of Isaiah, looking forward 100 years to see what Nebuchadnezzar was going to do. Verse 10, the city of confusion is broken down. Confusion. The city was perplexed. They did not know what to do. We have already encountered this in very recent chapters about them being perplexed. And it was a city of confusion. They didn't know what to do. And God loves to do that to men that rebel against him is to take away their wits and to leave them confused. And if you want to keep your wits in life, then obey Him and love Him and follow Him and keep His commandments. Because that is the keeping of our wits when we do that. The city of confusion is Jerusalem, and it's now broken down. It was confused. They didn't know what to do. Turn back two chapters. Two chapters. Verse 1, 
the burden of the valley of vision. What aileth thee now that thou art wholly gone up to the housetops? Isaiah 22.1 Thou that art full of stirs, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Thy slain men are not slain with the sword nor dead in battle. All thy rulers are fled together. Verse 5, it is a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision. Remember, that was last Sunday. When was that? That was Sennacherib. They didn't know what to do. You know, they were shooting off messengers to Egypt, trying to get help from them. The, the city didn't know what to do. But here we are with another prophecy looking forward even further at at. Verse 10 of chapter 24. The city of confusion is broken down. Nebuchadnezzar broke down its gate, broke down its wall. Every house is shut up that no man may come in. I mean, they've locked themselves inside because they're terrified. What's going to happen? You know the easiest way to get a man to come out of his house without a key? Light it on fire. Nebuchadnezzar was smart. Everybody comes out of their house when you light a fire. But they're all locked up. And so it's a description of Jerusalem under the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, and then he took the city. There is a crying for wine in the streets. I love how the Lord can reverse a figure of speech about wine. They didn't want wine. They weren't drinking wine. Nobody was in a joyful spirit for wine. But here there's a crying for wine in the streets. Why? Give wine and strong drink to him that is ready to perish. I love how the Lord in five verses can switch a figurative use of wine in this description of what's going on in the city of Jerusalem. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. Dirt or Judah? Mirth of all dirt in the world gone or the mirth of Judah gone? And we just keep encountering it. In the city is left desolation. That's all Nebuchadnezzar left. For the most part was desolation. A few people under Gedaliah and the gate is smitten with destruction. When you have a city without a gate and its walls broken down, it is a terrible place to live in that day and time. And that is where Jerusalem was left. So we come to verse 13. When thus it shall be in the midst of the land among the people, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree, and as the gleaning grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice, they shall sing for the majesty of the Lord, they shall cry aloud from the sea. Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. When this took place, the first 12 verses, the utter ruin of Judah and Jerusalem, there would be a few olive berries left in the tree. When it says in verse 13, there shall be as the shaking of an olive tree, I am hungry as a lion. There shall be as. We're not talking about olive trees. We're talking about when you shook an olive tree by backing your pickup truck into it two or three times and most of the olive berries fell down for you to gather. There were a few left in the uppermost branches. We've already, been, we've already had this figure of speech. Right. It was about Ephraim that time. This is about Judah. So there's a few left. Like there would be a few olive berries left in a tree if you shook the tree to get its crop to fall down. Like... When you pick grapes, there's a few grapes that are missed in a vintage. But the vintage is already pulled, but there's a few grapes left, so there is a small remnant. This remnant shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. And there were godly men that were dispersed abroad. You know, Jeremiah was left there. Jeremiah went down into Egypt. 
There was Esther. There was Mordecai. There was Ezekiel. There was Daniel. There was Daniel's three friends. They're in Babylon, but there's still praise going up from God for a remnant that was not killed. Right. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. They're not in the land. They're in Cyprus. They're in Phoenicia. They're in Tyre. They're in Crete. They're in Alexandria. A seacoast, a maritime area. But they're not in the land. But they're crying to the Lord because the Lord has left a righteous remnant. Wherefore, and here's the prophet Isaiah, Wherefore, glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. As you see Jerusalem burning, glorify the Lord. He will save himself a remnant and will restore. It is not the end of the nation. It's the end of most of the nation. And you in the isles glorify the Lord. This fire is not the end. This fire is the end of most. So glorify the Lord. He still has something in mind. And here it's just a hint. In a few verses, it'll be much more than a hint about what's coming. Which brings us to the next section, verses 16 through 20. Sure judgment for their treachery. And I read it, verse 16. From the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous. Now, brethren, we trust, we trust the man that drew the line between verses 15 and 16 by God's providence. But I hope that you can see the first half of verse 16 does sort of belong with verse 15. From the uttermost part of the earth have we heard songs, even glory to the righteous, that righteous Jews were going to have glory shown to them. Oh, yes. But here, here is Isaiah. He's looking ahead a hundred years. He hears these songs of the righteous from scattered all over because he has just viewed the desolation of Judah and he hears them singing. But all he can see is the terrible events that took place at Jerusalem's end. So his words are, But, but, when I look at the vision I just had, because, see, he hasn't been delivered from the destruction. He's a prophet looking forward at the destruction. It's that remnant that was delivered from the destruction that were singing praise and glory to the majesty of God. But Isaiah looking forward isn't one of those saved remnant Jews. He's the prophet that has to see the terror that's going to go down in the city of Jerusalem. And so he says, I, but I said... I wasn't singing like they were. They were singing because they had, they had been saved. They weren't killed by Nebuchadnezzar. But I said, my leanness, my leanness, woe unto me. All the fat prosperity of Judah and Jerusalem and Hezekiah's court, all of that is gone. I am lean. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Yea, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon thee, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall come to pass that he who fleeth from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. 
And he that cometh up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For the windows from on high are open, and the foundations of the earth do shake. The earth is utterly broken down, the earth is clean dissolved, the earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage, and the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. It will be down for the count. Verse 16. Isaiah could look ahead a hundred years and see some remnant Jews that were saved from the sword of Nebuchadnezzar and they're singing and praising God for salvation. But he did not feel that way because he hadn't been saved. He still had to see something that was yet to come and it was exceeding great, extraordinary treachery. And for those of you that read Jeremiah 40 and 41 last night, you know about an angle on that treachery. Who were the treacherous dealers using treachery in an extraordinary way or measure? They could be the Chaldeans. You know, commentaries want to run to the Chaldeans. I didn't know Nebuchadnezzar to be that treacherous. He was pretty plain and straightforward. If you'll submit to me, I'll spare you. Jeremiah, where do you want to live? I'll take care of you. I'm going to put Gedaliah in charge here. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't treacherous. This is extraordinary treachery. All you got to do is read about the final kings of Jerusalem to, to hear about that treachery. Oh, yeah. And especially what I wanted you to read last night, Ishmael's treachery against Gedaliah in Jeremiah 40 and 40, unprecedented. The treachery. And see, Isaiah is looking forward 100 years. You are kidding me. This is what's going to go on in Jerusalem? My leanness. My leanness. This is terrible. The treachery of my own people against each other. The treacherous have dealt very treacherously. I give you chapters to read for your profit and benefit. And if you're not familiar, you might want to read Second Kings and Second Chronicles and learn about the treachery that took place in that government of Jerusalem toward the end as Nebuchadnezzar came. Then after Nebuchadnezzar left and left Gedaliah in charge to take care of the king's daughters, to take care of Jeremiah, Ishmael came and murdered them. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. Terrible treachery. That's easy for me to, to look at verse 16 mm -hmm. and see Isaiah looking forward and seeing his brother, a fellow prophet named Jeremiah, suffering what he did, being thrown into prison, right. being thrown into a dungeon, being abused by the Jews, and then what Ishmael did to get a lot. Now that's treachery. Yep. I don't know what we would call treachery by Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't do anything bad. He said, if you'll submit, you'll be fine. They rebelled. He burned them to the ground. It doesn't sound treacherous. It sounds pretty straightforward. Verse 17, fear. That is the report of something bad happening, that the armies right outside your door are coming. Fear, that's one problem. The pit is another. The snare is another. They're figures of speech. There isn't a literal pit necessarily. There isn't a literal snare necessarily. But it doesn't matter. If you escape from one problem, you're going to be caught by another problem. That is what the verse means. Verse 17. Verse 18, it shall come to pass. There it is again that if you escape from one issue, you're going to be caught by another. Because 
the windows from on high are open. That's the same kind of language that God opened the windows of heaven and poured out the flood upon the earth. He poured it out upon Judah, and it was Nebuchadnezzar's army. And the foundations of the earth do shake. The earth is utterly broken down. That's Judea. The earth is clean, dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. It's all messed up. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. This language is so similar to Isaiah 13 about Babylon when the Medes and the Persians took it. This is Judah and the Babylonians taking it. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it. This is the last half of verse 20. And it shall fall and not rise again. Jerusalem was down for the count, 70 years, and would not rise again until Cyrus. You say, how, how do you do that? Because in verse 24, in verse 22 it says they're going to be visited. And in verse 23 it says they're going to be back at Mount Zion. So it wasn't forever in the sense that you're thinking of forever. It was down for the count and shall not rise again until God raised it back up with Cyrus the Persian. It was down and desolate for 70 years. No, there was no effort that could be made to raise it up ahead of time, ahead of schedule, so it was down. And we come to the last section, verses 21 through 23. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison and after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. Amen and amen. amen. About that 23rd verse especially. But verses 21 through 23 are describing in that day the Lord will punish the host. There's a large company of beings. Do you want to make it angels? The Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high. Or is there another kind of being that deals with God on high? And the kings of the earth upon the earth. So there are kings that operate on earth, and there are high ones that deal in a higher level. Can you think of who they might be? It starts with a P. The priests of God. The ecclesiastical rulers of the nation. The civil rulers of the nation. The civil rulers of the nation deal with civil matters of an earthly sort. The high ones are the priestly ministers and rulers of a nation that deal in spiritual things with God. The two of them together are going to be taken captive because neither is going to be delivered as Nebuchadnezzar ravages the city of Jerusalem. And they are bound together like prisoners are put in a pit to keep them together until they're all manacled together to take the trip back to Babylon. And they were put in prison, and yet they would be visited. And you need to read Second Kings and Second Chronicles about kings that were put in prison. And a new king of Babylon would come into power, and he would raise up a king of Judah and sit him at his own table. These things are fulfilled in the Bible perfectly, beautifully. Then, verse 23, then, after these events, the nation is scattered. Judah and Jerusalem is down for the count. It's desolated. There's no temple. Then, the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed. 
The moon is the light that rules the night. The sun is the light that rules the day. These represent the rulers of the kingdom of God. They're going to be confounded and ashamed in comparison to a ruler that arrives. Even if you took those words literally, it still fits that the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed by the sun of righteousness arising with healing in his wings. And here is where passages like Haggai chapter 2 become so precious. Haggai 2.6. Remember Haggai 2.6? When Zerubbabel is rebuilding that temple in Jerusalem and it looks so pitiful and so small, and God said to him, don't you worry about this thing looking pitiful in comparison to Solomon's temple. Because the glory of this latter house will be greater than the former house. And he'll rule before his ancients gloriously. Who are his ancients? The same set of men. The elders of a nation. They were priests. They were prophets. They were rulers. As we find John and Jesus meeting. And has existed for 400 years. Of various kinds and various levels. In the Judean family of David. The ancients. And they turned into apostles and prophets and pastors. Jesus will reign before his ancients or the elders of his kingdom. And so 24 leaves us with one verse. It shows us in verses 21 and 22 that the, the ecclesiastical rulers or the priests and the kings, the civil rulers, are going to be taken captive. But they're going to be visited. And they're going to come back. And if you've read Ezra and Nehemiah, you should remember that there was a checking of the genealogies to make sure that the priests that came back, oh yeah, were the priests that could administer the office in the rebuilt temple. Right. And it was, a, it was a serious problem for them because the genealogy had been so corrupted during that 70 years to find a legitimate priest. And so these are the ancients, and God is going to rule in Mount Zion before them gloriously. And how's he going to do it? with the glorious Son of God, Amen. with the Lord Jesus Christ and the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will perform this. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word from Isaiah 24, and may we look forward to Isaiah 25 and the feast of fat things that followed verse 23 of chapter 24. Amen. Amen. Please stand with me. Heavenly Father, we want the lesson. We want the lesson that we should examine ourselves and make sure that we are keeping the covenant that you have made with us, the New Testament covenant, right. and that we are keeping thy New Testament laws and thy ordinances of you, as you have given them to us that we might receive your great blessing right. in our lives and that we might do honor and glory to thee. Right. Be with us now as we go to lunch. Yeah. Bless our fellowship together and let us come back and celebrate the feast of fat things with marrow and wine on the lees well refined. Lord, we thank thee for Jesus Christ and that he opened the way of the gospel kingdom to Gentiles. Amen. Sanctify the eating of this food in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.